Matt Whitaker, former U.S. Acting Attorney General. This is such a great conversation about America, our future, what's going to save our republic. We have a great football player. Matt Whitaker is here. Matt. They tried to bury me. They didn't realize I was a C. Former acting U.S. Attorney General. Under President Trump. I'm going to be an unwavering supporter of law enforcement. Welcome to Liberty and Justice with your host, Matt Whitaker. Welcome to Liberty and Justice. I'm your host, Matt Whitaker. It's an interesting show today. Uh, we're going to uh, do a deep dive into central bank digital currencies. And my guest today is Michael Falkender. He is the chief economist at America First Policy Institute, where I am, full disclosure, the uh, co-chair of the Law and Justice uh, group. And he's also the former Assistant Secretary for Treasury in the Trump administration. Michael, welcome. Great to be with you, Matt. Well, we were, before we uh, started recording, we were already talking about uh, all the twists and turns of central bank digital currency, or as some people call them, CBDCs. Um, you can call them either one, but that's going to be the topic today. Why don't you, for the folks that are tuning in, I have some great loyal uh, listeners and, and viewers for this show, and I'm very grateful for them. They Everywhere I go on, in this country, they tell me they watch it. And so every week we try to put a good show out. And this one's going to be, I think, exceptional because you're our guest. But why don't you tell me what, uh, tell our, our, our listeners and viewers what CBDCs are and, and, and why, they're, why they're, quite frankly, a threat. Sure. So let's start with just the basic role of money and paper currency, right? So money does two things for us. It's a store of value and it it's a means of exchange. Those are the two essential roles. And the challenge that we have is as our lives become more digital and more of our activities go online, there's been an argument that paper currency is less meaningful as a, a means of exchange. And so might we take advantage of the advancements in technology and move to a digital dollar? Right now, to some extent or to a great extent, the private sector has already done this for us. We transact very little in dollars. You know, almost none of our transactions we engage in these days are with paper money. And yet at the end of the day, we can always convert the paychecks we get from our employers, the checks we get from the government, money we receive from anything else into paper currency if we wanted to, but we store it at private banks in bank accounts. And then banks set up payment systems between them to facilitate commerce. And that can be me using a credit card to buy something at my local grocery store. It can also be me ordering something from Amazon and their distribution center being hundreds of miles from my home. I can already use paper currency that then is on deposit with the bank and still engage in digital transactions. So the question becomes, well, why do we need to move to this central bank digital currency and there are some arguments that perhaps it will increase the speed with which activity takes place. Maybe it will lower costs. That perhaps and it's probably, it not to interrupt, but it's probably outside the scope of this discussion to talk yeah. about the velocity of money and why that's good for economies and why when the velocity of money slows down, that that. Uh, oftentimes leads to uh, recession. But anyway, yeah, I, no, I, I don't. So there are some reasons why people have thought about central bank digital currencies. There may be some benefits, but what we certainly want to also take into account are the trade offs, right? None of this is going to come for free. And the issue is that the way that a central bank digital currency would work is that you would largely replace your bank account with a private bank, and you instead would have a bank account directly with the Federal Reserve. 
Okay, so again, to connect it back to paper money, paper money is something issued by the Federal Reserve, but then you've got a bank that acts as an intermediary. Imagine for a moment that you kind of eliminate that intermediary and you just bank directly with the central bank and they facilitate all payments. And so that generates enormous concerns from a privacy standpoint, from a government power standpoint. And, you know, one of the one of the things that I've learned in my time in Washington is that you, you've got to think about how people with ill intent can potentially use the authority of the government to do nefarious things, right? And so while there may be some benefits, we have to greatly safeguard our liberties against the potential abuse of having all of this power over our financial lives centralized with the government. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was just, I was kind of thinking as you were talking about how we got here, where, you know, really, I guess in the mid 1800s, banks would issue their own currencies and back it with their own, you know, gold or silver or whatever they uh, claimed they had in their safe. And then there'd be all these runs on banks. And, you know, I mean, you know, our history, you know, we had the, uh, you know, the, uh, certain presidents uh, wanted to have a central bank and or a, or a, or a government-owned bank, and and obviously we you know those were hot issues uh, back in the day. And now we have, I think you know we all understand a little bit what the Federal Reserve is, and you know that they're actually notes and not dollars. I mean, it's, you know that's I think sometimes people have a hard time wrapping their heads around. Um, those types of things, because, you know, they hold a dollar and they say, well, this is a dollar. It's actually, no, it's a reserve note. Right. Uh, just read what it says on its face. Um, but all that being said, you know, uh, I guess, why don't you dive a little bit more? You know, it's very clear that if we, if the central bank issues the currency, then they're going to be able to control that currency. What are some of the bad outcomes you can see? And what have we, I don't right. think this is science fiction, because we, there are moments in time in our recent history where, uh, you know, the the Treasury and the Department of Justice have tried to use the banking system to punish industries that they don't like. That's right. So right now, when the Federal Reserve issues those notes, you're largely free to use them as you want. There's while while those notes have serial numbers on it, there is really no tracking of of how the money is used. But as you move into and so right now, if you use a banking system, while your credit card transactions are tracked, your debit card transactions, your checks are tracked. As you well know, Matt, you know this better than I do, the federal government needs a warrant to go find out how you are using your money. Well, but what if it's the federal government itself that is the one doing the intermediation? What are the lines between the government being able to facilitate all of that activity and the federal government knowing how you're using your money without going and getting a warrant from a judge. Where is judicial review in all of this? What kind of abuse can take place there? Second, as, as we were talking about, we saw during the Obama administration, there was an activity that the Justice Department launched called Operation Choke Point, whereby essentially the Obama administration said there are certain industries that money laundering is more likely to take place in. And so banks, we want you to cut back, if not eliminate your lending activities to those industries. Now, this was not enacted by Congress. There was no massive study showing this increase in 
money laundering among these activities. It was more that they just didn't like them. And so they went to banks threatening regulatory action if the lending activities to those industries were not curtailed. Well, again, imagine for a moment if instead of an administration having to go to banks and telling them not to do in lending activity, they were able to just go to the Federal Reserve and say, we don't want you to facilitate any payments to those activities anymore. I mean, it's it's Operation Choke Point on steroids that they yeah. can just, without apparently acts of Congress it would just at an administrative whim, potentially come in and decide we don't like these industries, therefore we're going to preclude payment on it. I mean, is it is it all that unreasonable for us to think that they're going to say, we don't want you buying guns, even though they are legal to defend yourself. We don't want you um, purchasing alcohol on Sundays or, you know, come up with whatever activity the federal government, the administration at the time doesn't want you engaging in, you know, we don't want you providing materials to pro-life institutions. We, we have seen the extent to which this administration and the Obama administration weaponized parts of our government. And if what you now do is facilitate the weaponization of the payment system, that's just, it's so central to every other part of our lives. Everything we do there's there's an almost everything we do there's an exchange of payment and if now the federal government has full knowledge of all of your payments actually provides all of the architecture facilitating those payments and on a whim can decide well we don't like those activities anymore we're going to stop them what are the boundaries there what does that do to individual liberty now i know that there are some that are going to listen to this that are going to say you know come on you guys are imagining uh, you know, an army over the hill. This is, you know, there's no movement right now. There's no pending regulations. How, uh, you know, use your crystal ball a little bit and look into the future. Is this something that we should expect regulations or we should expect the Fed or the Treasury Department to, to start to make moves into creating a central bank digital currency? And have other countries uh, done this? So the Biden administration issued an executive order early on in its tenure that did a, a number of things. Number one, it called upon the Department of Treasury to write a report, and it was actually a decent report looking at some of these issues. And in fact, the Treasury Department's own report came out and, and raised some of these concerns about privacy. But second, it encouraged the Federal Reserve to continue looking at updates to the payment system. And so the Fed has been launching and, and creating a real-time payment system. So again, not to get too far into the weeds, but as most of your listeners may know, banks generally have everything clear once a day, right? And so like all the checks that come in, all the deposits that come in, they all kind of post overnight and then it's there. So we, we have posting that's discreet, it's once a day. So the idea is they wanna to go to a real-time posting system. So that, that those transactions post immediately instead of just once at the end of the day. That system has the ability potentially to be the foundation of a, of a CBDC. So in creating the FedNow system that is this real-time posting between banks, it has the potential to be modified into a CBDC. And so they continue to create that infrastructure. The third thing is that it the, the executive order called upon the Department of Justice and the Attorney General to render a legal decision as to whether or not additional legislation would be required 
if the central bank decided to launch a digital currency. And my understanding, you may know this better than I do, but my understanding is that there is a view at both the Department of Justice of this administration and the Federal Reserve that no additional legislation is required, that they could, if they so wanted, launch one. Now, I would I would anticipate that were they to start mandating that people move to it, that's going to require an act of Congress. But one never knows once this thing is out there, how much they effectively kind of coerce per people to move towards it. And the launch of it, it seems to me, the decision to do that belongs with the first branch of government. And that is what I've been saying to people is make sure you let your member of Congress know that anywhere and everywhere there's any kind of must pass legislation, somewhere in there, we need to write into law that any launch of a CBDC by the Federal Reserve must have the affirmative approval of Congress. Yeah. And remember, this is a, a an administration that, you know, lost in the EPA versus West Virginia when they wanted to, you know, sort of take authority that they didn't have uh, from Congress and regulate carbon. Obviously, this is the same administration that without authority wanted to forgive student loan debt. So, I mean, they are very much willing to take uh, executive power and exercise it, even if they're not authorized by Congress. And obviously the Supreme Court through the major issues doctrine, this seems like a, the type of thing that would fall into that bucket that, you know, no one until recently had ever contemplated a central bank digital currency. And, um, and so I can't imagine that, you know, Congress has authorized that. Now, that being said, those are that's probably a future fight that maybe both of us will be involved in. You never know. But um, one more question is, is are any other countries doing CBDCs? Yes. So other countries are looking at this. So China certainly is is more advanced than we are on doing this. And this is where you you generate some additional concern, which is in China, a lot of their transactions have moved to online platforms as well. And because there's much more engagement by the government in every part of their economic activity, they actually create things called social scores hmm. in China. So an input into your social score is how you spend your money. And so can you imagine if we start having the federal government create an algorithm that says, based upon your spending habits, you're a good person, you're a bad person, and we're going to allow or disallow various activities based upon this score of how you're spending money and we're going to deem how you know pro-society or anti-social you are um that's what's at play here right and given that this is an administration who came out with their own version of the ministry of truth given that this is an administration who as you mentioned matt about student loan forgiveness when the Supreme Court came down and said student loan forgiveness was unconstitutional, did the Biden administration pull back? No, they sent the president out there at the end of the day said, it's okay, we're going to yep. find other ways around yep. it. Exactly. Exactly. You know, he, he's, and they already have come out with a proposal that appears to, again, be have a very weak toehold into, you know, what the law actually says. But, you know, this administration. Um, but back to your question, country. countries that are, you know, countries like China who are, um, a little bit more authoritarian, uh, China is proceeding with with the launch of a central bank, yeah. or certainly the facilities to engage in this kind of monitoring of transactions. Now, would these would these central bank digital currencies be be blockchain based, like a, like you know people would imagine a Bitcoin or an Ethereum type situation? 
so um whether they're blockchain on a on a on multiple ledgers or it's a single ledger that's i, I mean i believe it's built on blockchain technology yeah. but i don't know that a central bank digital currency necessarily requires that it be redundant ledgers you know simultaneously versus a single ledger i i I'm not advanced enough technologically to know whether one requires yeah. the other. Yeah. Uh, it's just merely that these are direct claims against the Federal Reserve rather than this indirect system that we have right now that the banking sector lies between the, the Federal Reserve and the consumer. But you're so right. Going back to sort of your original proposition, which is, you know, the law recognizes that essentially your transactions are private and unless uh, and until the government can get a warrant to get your private transactions, whether that's your credit cards or your checks or, you know, your ATM withdrawals, whatever it is, um, you know, they can't just uh, have that information. And, and this central bank digital currency would certainly eliminate their need for that because they would have all of the information to the to, the from, the how much, and even maybe what for. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's really frightening stuff. And I, and I don't think that we're premature to sort of be waving the flag and suggesting that this is not uh, and should not be the future of the United States of America. That's right. And when you see the ways in which we've had the unprecedented weaponization of government, I think it's entirely appropriate for people who have these concerns about individual liberty to in advance identify areas of concern that have the potential to be weaponized. It's it's too late if it's already become weaponized. We need to have people identifying these ahead of time, raising the alarm bells and calling upon, upon Congress to put in place appropriate safeguards so that we're not trying to fix this up after our civil liberties have been violated. Yeah, before we move on to one Final topic. I was. Is there anything else about central bank digital currencies that we should make sure the listeners know? They're somewhat related to cryptocurrencies, but okay. they're they're not identical, right? So we are still talking about something that's in dollars as opposed to cryptocurrencies that have that are other supply and demand. So there's you know one should not interpret our discussion today as anything in opposition to Bitcoin or Ethereum or having right. anything to do with those alternatives. Or even Doge. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it, it, the concern here is, are we now gonna place the government at the heart of, of payments rather than private banks? Yeah. And so um, it's just important that your viewers not think that this is in any way uh, calling upon any kind of legislation in the cryptocurrency space. This is exceptionally specific to the role of the government in providing direct bank accounts to individuals and the power that they would obtain from right. it. Well, since I have you, Michael, I I can't help but since I'm kind of a amateur dismal scientist myself, um, and you're the chief economist at AFPI, I have to ask you your uh, you know view of the short term and long term. American economy. Uh, as we sit here, we're sort of at second half of July of 2023. What do you uh, what do you see? Is there going to be a recession or has the Fed uh, landed us softly? I've been saying for quite a while now that the fact that wages haven't been able to keep up with inflation, the fact that people are working their way through all the stimulus money that they accumulated during the pandemic and that credit card debt 
is hitting levels that we have never seen before. At some point, consumers are going to run out of money and they're going to have to pull back on their activity. And uh, particularly, not only with credit card debt at its levels, but with rising interest rates, that's going to start to bind even more. And so I've been surprised a little bit about how resilient consumers have been, but we are starting to see signs of it. We had um, a report come out earlier this week indicating that housing sales are falling off quite a bit, that the rising interest rate environment has finally had an impact on housing that we thought would have already taken place. Um, so that's so in the short run, I anticipate that I don't see the Fed quickly, I don't see the economy getting quickly down to a 2% inflation rate. It's still operating above that. You know, the core inflation is, has been around four and a half over the last 12 months. So we're still looking at above normal inflation, and yet we're looking at very little growth. And so it's it's the standard stagflation. And largely that's a result of administration policies that put priority on regulatory compliance and the government knowing seemingly better on how to run the economy than the private sector. Oh. Uh, if you look at the jobs report for last month, the four sectors that saw job growth were the government itself, social services, healthcare, and construction. And what do those four industries all have in common? Most of the money is coming from government. So there's a lot of construction jobs right now that's coming from the infrastructure bill and from the CHIPS Act. So a government-driven economy is generally not known for being one, sustainable, or two, causing much growth. So yeah. that, that's of concern. The long run, the challenge that we have in this country is the same as the rest of the developed world, which is that we have an aging population and we're having fewer children than ever. And so the concern we have is that, um, are we gonna have enough workers to actually provide for um, this, we have a growing population, but the the mix of the population is yeah. different than what it's ever been. And that's creating some economic challenges to our mandatory spending programs. We have entirely unsustainable fiscal budget situation, and we need to get back to growth. We need to get back to abundance. And we'd hopefully like to get back to a position where young people in this country would actually like to get married, have children and raise families and um, bring those values back to back to our country. Yeah. And I keep hearing anecdotally that the, you know, the, the lower waged um, worker, the unemployed worker is already in a recession. You know, they're already yeah. dramatically feeling um, these higher interest rates. Obviously they, um, you know, again, it's hard. <laughs> Macroeconomics is easy because you can paint with such a broad brush. When you talk about individual consumers, everybody's different, but I think there's a you know, a, a fairly significant yeah. consumer debt burden and and that maybe, you know, that those well, people that are already- Half struggling. the population lives paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And, you know, that's, so they, they spend everything that comes in. Well, what that means for that, and that tends to be the lower half, you know, the more low-income people are going to be living paycheck to paycheck than high-income people, right? Some right. high-income people have just very lavish lifestyles and they too live paycheck to paycheck. And that's, their choice on how much they do or don't save. But people who live paycheck to paycheck are going to therefore not have buffers when there are inflation shocks. And so if wages are not keeping up with price increases and they're living paycheck to paycheck, they have to cut back. And yeah. so inflation is more impactful on people who are living paycheck to paycheck. And the other thing is, if you look at where we've, seen a lot of inflation 
in the last two and a half years, fuel and food have been have seen higher inflation than a lot of other consumption items. Food and fuel make up a higher percentage of spending for low-income people than for high-income people. Right. And so low-income people have less savings. They're seeing, therefore, in effect, they see higher inflation, right? Because the inflation numbers that we post are for an average consumption bundle. But if your consumption bundle is more tilted towards the things that have had inflation, then your personal inflation rate has been higher. And because food and fuel have seen higher inflation rates and they make up a larger portion of the consumption bundle of low-income people, they've had it more rough yeah. as a result of wages not keeping up. Fascinating. Well, um, thank you for joining me, Michael. This is, uh, I maybe I'm the only person that finds this stuff interesting, but I hope that you know my listeners and viewers do too. Um, so appreciate you being here. Absolutely. And if you find out that they are, they found it interesting, I'm always happy to come back. All right. And where's the best place for people to keep track of what you're doing? And uh, I'll make sure I link it in the show notes. Yeah. Look us up on AmericaFirstPolicy.com. All of our work from our various research centers gets posted there. And we've got a lot of activity on every dimension of what's going on at the federal and state level. All right. Well, thank you for your service to this great country. You never know, you might be back in some capacity, uh, good Lord willing. But uh, as always, thanks for watching Liberty and Justice. I'm your host, Matt Whitaker. Everything I'm doing, you can be find it at whitaker.tv. Till next week, thank you.